0: Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, author and curator Sarah Lewis talks to award-winning actress Anna Devere Smith about Lewis's nonfiction debut, The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure, and The Search of Mastery, which examines stories of innovation and discovery born from the unlikeliest of experiences, in a conversation that's equal parts funny, moving and thoughtful, the two women discuss how failure is crucial to true success. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org/podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud) <laughs>
1: All right, what a pleasure it is to be here. Thought we might begin by by talking a little bit about what the book is about and and why I'm so excited to speak with you about it here in particular. I grew up about 10 blocks away from the New York Public Library's main main stage here and I would come really to dream. Uh, Not always to check out books, I would come to the Rose Reading Room to dream and, what I never would have expected is that I was dreaming about a book that would seem to be to do with the very opposite of what often dreams are about, uh, adversity, failure, and the gift of those things. As I, as I worked in the arts, I really wanted to write about what I saw happening in artist studios that wasn't public oftentimes, these back-turned paintings that artists weren't going to burn or kind of throw out, but were important for what they did want to show me. So the book is really looking at that as an atlas of stories at the lives of so many different entrepreneurs and inventors and artists and athletes to understand what it is that led to their rise. But the moment that I knew I wanted to write a book that was a little bit off my path as a curator and an art historian was when I went in New Haven, Connecticut to see Let Me Down Easy at the Long Wharf Theatre. And you, I don't think know this, maybe you do, but I sat at the end of your performance and I might have been with my friend Julia, one of the last two people to leave. I was so struck by what I saw, what, what I saw beyond these beautiful portraits and stories that you inhabited and embodied. Uh, was the ability to tell the full arc of a life by showing the gifts that come from honoring limits, by looking at limits, and what can come by understanding the grit, the gifts from adversity to do with a life story. And in that moment, I wanted to understand if I was really pushing myself to my full capacity, to my own limit. And a few months later, I began to write The Rise. Now, that, that's one of the many moments that, for me, connects me to your work. But I hope we can discuss what creativity is fully about, what creative mastery is fully about, as it relates to the rise and as it relates to our lives in general. And then we'll open it up for questions. Too.
2: Well, um, maybe uh, I, I just found out that I had the distinction of being the first person to see Sarah's TED Talk
1: right. that right. she just
2: did to much oh. success yeah. in uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she had, you haven't even seen it yet, I right? I haven't even seen it, no. And uh, one <laughs> of the things that I think is really helpful to sort of frame this conversation mm. is, uh, which you did so eloquently in that talk, mm. is the, dif- the difference between success and mastery. Sure. What's the difference?
1: Right. So this is something that I, I came to understand by working at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, I was fortunate that, that was my first job. and I went into an exhibition of Elizabeth Murray's retrospective, her paintings, and I was struck by the fact that she told me that those early 1970s paintings, in her mind, weren't really works that met her goal. They didn't kind of meet the mark. But that's what kept her going. And in the 2000s and kind of at the end of her career, she would riff on those motifs and those early paintings. And at that moment I thought, look at this, she has works that are heralded by everyone now at the museum that are seen as successful, but yet what propelled her was a sense of the unfinished, that she still had more to do. It made me think about the distinction between success and mastery, really. Success being, as I see it now, a label that the world confers on you when you say have a retrospective at MoMA or something else like that. But mastery is what I I call, as I write about it, this ever onward almost, you know. How many times have we seen a masterpiece or an iconic work of art go into the world while its creator considers it unfinished or riddled with all these different difficulties or flaws? And and as I write about it, it's, it's really countless times. It's... As I speak about in the TED Talk, it's Paul Cezanne not feeling as if he had achieved his goal to realize nature in paint. That was what he wanted to do. So he would often leave works aside with the intention of picking them back up again. And at the end of his life, he had only signed less than 10% of his paintings. And it goes on and on. So mastery requires dealing with what
2: I call the near win, Mm -hmm. uh, really. So what's the difference between the near win and mm-hmm. failure. Are they the same thing?
1: You know, I don't think that they are. Um, I think it's a matter of degrees, but it's, it's most vivid when we look at it in athletic competition. Uh, if you look at the difference between Olympic silver medalist versus bronze medalist and what they feel on the medal stand, silver medalist as Tom Gilovich has found up at Cornell when they looked at this in the 1990s, feel so much more frustrated with themselves because they can envision having received gold whereas bronze are happy to not have received fourth place and not medal at all you know so Silver medalists feel that near win, and what that study found, and it's really instructive, is that bronze medalists aren't focused as much on follow-up competition the way that silver medalists are mm. because of that near win frustration. Mm. It's Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work. It's counterfactual thinking. But it's so important because I think that ultimately this word failure isn't actually accurate for what we're describing in any means. But I think what's con- what, for me, is a helpful visual is to think about the gap between where we are and where we want to go. Where
2: we are and where we want to go. But Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, the way the public signs in on Mm -hmm. what we've done Mm -hmm. could uh, make us feel as though that the devastation of failure. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of three parts, three um, characters in the book who uh, seem to exemplify that. One who you go back to a lot, Morse in Morse code, and Ben. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and also Paul Taylor, yeah. you know, because that whole thing, like, the, I'm yeah. pleased that yeah. you liked Let Me Down Easy, but there were many people around me who thought that production was a failure. Hmm. And that, that thought hmm. uh, really began to limit what could happen to the play. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that was very hard for me, yeah. and, but yeah. I didn't give up, you know. I, yeah. I think I had two more productions after that. Yeah. But it was it, that feeling of when you have... You're not so sure, right? Yeah. You, you give it everything you have. Yeah. You're not so sure. Mm-hmm. And then the public weighs in and says, well, you know, uh, uh, so it, n- they don't even say necessarily yep. almost, but not quite. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right, right. it depends on right. who, right? I'm sure there's a lot of, audi- a lot of artists out here. I yeah. um, so, mm-hmm. can feel it. Sure. You know, yeah. I mean, so, so you have, you have yeah. that, mm-hmm. which is... I like to think about, um, it makes me feel good to know that uh, uh, that Martha Graham mm-hmm. was never satisfied. Right. So this, right. you know, I sort of have that, you know, just the Martha mm-hmm. Graham thing. Yeah. Um, and it could also be, on the one hand, a real sense of where one is headed and therefore always being in this almost but not quite. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, you know, maybe it's also a protection mm-hmm. because of the people mm-hmm. who will say to you, right. it's just not
1: there. Right, right. There's a difference I think between failing in a performative sense, in a public way, uh versus something that's more private. And I think I I uh I gravitated in my writing towards those who were coping with their own endeavors in a very public way. But Samuel way.
2: Morse, I yeah. mean, can you imagine No, I really can, being actually. Him? You know? I mean, say I mean, a little bit about uh, what sure. he went through.
1: Yeah, Samuel Morse, most people know him as the inventor of the telegraph, but what I, as an art historian, knew is he spent 26 years in this failed by all accounts pursuit of being a painter. He couldn't support his, he was the classic struggling artist story in the 1830s. He, he couldn't support his family. He, he, he moved to New York and said, if I am to live in poverty, I might as well be there as anywhere. You know, he really could not handle both the career of being an artist, psychologically to a certain extent, and also financially. He went into debt when he exhibited his work. But when he hit this kind of nadir, he was actually at NYU as the first professor of painting there, he converted the stretcher bars of what was a failed canvas, in his mind, painting canvas, the stretcher bars into the telegraph itself literally took the wood from this failed pursuit and turned it into the first model, which is now in the Oval Office. And to me, it's, it's incredible when you look at his letters and you see that he remembered the mortifying, as he would call it, critique he would receive from these well-known painters about his work. And he would write home to his brother and his father about this. But what you start to see, and it's beautiful, in the 20 years it took him to get the patent for the telegraph, is that he used all of those experiences. To make something else. To be determined, to have grit. Exactly,
2: exactly. But what about, I mean, think about what it must have been like for him. When Tell about the painting he wanted to have in Congress and how they talked about that. (laughs) That type of thing. All of us who are artists get these types of reviews and letters. Say something about it.
1: So this was the time when Congress was actually commissioning painters, right, to make work. <laughs> so that's the first thing we should say. And he wanted—he had spent two sojourns in Europe learning how to be a sort of history painter, right? He spent time in the Louvre when there were plagues that kept people off the streets for eighteen months, trying to paint every work that he could find in this one gallery. So he was really proficient, and he wanted to have a work like this in Congress and. He was rejected. The quote was by John Quincy Adams. He was rejected beyond hope of appeal. See,
2: I mean, Congress. now really, he.
1: I mean, no, don't even try. It. Don't even. <laughs> and, uh, and and it went on that way. But what's interesting is one of his paintings of Congress, showing Congress in action, has as its center figure this man tinkering with the lights above these kind of oil chandeliers. It's as if he sort of knew where he was going. Like, they might reject me, but I have another invention, another another idea. But he he took to his bed depressed and uh, when he received that rejection, but that's what started to turn the tide.
2: You know, there's so many things, I love this book. Um, There's so many things in it that if, raise your hand if if you're an artist or an inventor. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling it's plenty of people like that. Uh, Or just raise your hand if you're trying to do something difficult. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the right question
2: so, so there are a lot of things in the book Like that quote from John Quincy Adams That you could cut out and put on your mirror You could have like yeah. tons of these Fantastic right. things like that You know, yeah. I, Paul had said That he wanted this to be a conversation I mean, I'm, I, I can assure you I'm a lot more fascinated with you Than you could possibly be with me, but uh, he wanted this to be a conversation, <laughs> and so I did bring a couple of things that I wanted to share, that are um, that are have to do with people who you interviewed and okay. I interviewed, yeah. and um, the one that I want to read I think helps us. I'm not going to perform it. I'm just going to use the words. Uh, 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 I interview people to perform them, but I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. But so so. I think this person who who, who you talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed at length a couple of years ago uh, at his office at Harvard, and I think this helps us think about the type of mindset that you sort of need to have to be in that state of, I'll call it almost but not quite, Uh and you're calling it that sort of gap between what you are and what you want to be. So this is from an interview that I did of E.O. Wilson, the great biologists in order to perform both he and James Watson at an event uh, for Mm -hmm. the World Science Festival. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't speak to each other for many, many years because uh, when they were in their 20s, if you can imagine, like 25, they were both at Harvard, and E.O. Wilson uh, got tenure first, Ah. although Watson had just done the code of Mm -hmm. DNA Mm -hmm. with Crick. Didn't Didn't have the Nobel Prize yet, but everybody knew he was going to have it. And Watson was incensed that they could have given E.O. Wilson tenure first. And the reason that they did was because he got an offer from Stanford and they didn't want to lose him. So for years and years... Uh, as Wilson would put it, yeah. he couldn't even get a kind word wow. from Watson passing him in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, but I'm on their surprised. 80th, for the, his 80th, you know how surprised. life is, isn't this nice? Yeah. For well, this is when they're 25, they have this bitter relationship. Yeah. So Watson threw a big public birthday party for him on his oh, 80th birthday. I love it. I love and it. That, okay, cool. so this is uh, uh, E.O. Wilson, who you know as the ants guy, Giving, this is what he, this is his frame that I think allows him to be in the state Mm -hmm. of this thing. I love that here, We live near, he's talking about when he went to Washington with his father. Now he'd already lost his eye by, uh, with a fish, with a, uh, throwing a fish hook that went back into his eye and um, he lived with an aunt. He doesn't say much about his mother. And in those days, they just used ether and they just took his eye out. Which is why his work is about ants rather than birds because he has to look closely. That doesn't stop him.
0: I didn't know this. (laughs) So his father
2: gets this job in Washington. We lived near the National Zoo and spent hours and hours in an actual zoo and then, and wandered in Rock Creek Park Uh, I I wandered in Walk Creek Park on expeditions with my imagination developing. Mm -hmm. And went to the Smithsonian and to the National Museum of Natural Mm -hmm. History and saw the wonders that had been built up there by our government in America's attic. But also Mm -hmm. in these splendid displays of natural history, great insect collection. And I knew at nine and 10 years old that the museum I was visiting in the zoo had scientists. You know, people whose careers were studying all these wonderful things. And because they were in these august buildings of the federal government, must be extraordinarily important. There's nothing I could imagine as a boy better than being a scientist working on these subjects and going into the jungles and so on. And then when we went back to Mobile, I had already begun to collect butterflies and study ants because there was this 1934 article I read avidly in the National Geographic called Ants Savage and Civilized with pictures (laughs) of them and so forth. I would spend large amounts of time studying the animals and moving my way up in the Boy Scouts of America. That was my salvation. The Boy Scouts of America, what a great organization. You can advance, you can learn at your own pace. You know, the public schools of Alabama were not very good, to say the least. All of the young men had gone to war, and this had two effects. One was I had the woods to myself, there were no hunters anymore, fields were growing up, there were wild pigs running around, you know, that sort of thing in South Alabama and North Florida where I stayed for a year in Pensacola. It reinforced the sense that this was a world that belonged to me. I knew the butterflies, the snakes. I knew a lot when I was 13, 14 years old. And the other thing was that I took my first job delivering the Mobile Press Register. I could see now... that this guy was frantic. He didn't have any boys old enough to deliver the papers. I delivered every day 420 papers. I would get up at 3 in the morning, and my stepmother, you know, hard scrabble, this was a kind of young man she wanted to raise, I would take two sacks of papers, big stacks, Put them on my, sh- my new Schwinn bicycle That my father had bought for me I would finish by 7 And then ride home a short distance Get my breakfast and go to school Then in the afternoon, in the evening Once a week, I would go to the Boy Scout meeting And then, you know, in spare time I was earning merit badges So I would go to bed somewhere around 8 or 9 After supper, staying up one time One time a week, Saturday night To listen to Jack Benny and Bob Hope <sighs> <laughs> and he told me all that, and he said, that's the way I am today. I get up every morning, I go to work, I never get depressed. Yeah. 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 So there are people who I think are even out of the context almost mm-hmm. of this, what am I and what I want to be, mm-hmm. because they're able to find the yeah. joy in what they're being mm-hmm. in that exploration. Exactly.
1: And what I... I <laughs> I love hearing her read uh, also because you embody that joy when you're doing it. And I think so much of what this book is about is the question that I had and that is, what does it take to stay encouraged you know, while you're in this gap? And it's that joy, it's that intrinsic joy of the doing, right? Whether it's exploration, having the woods to yourself, and whether it's Watson, who, when I interviewed him, it was a crazy interview on the, I should show you the tape, I'd love to hear you read it, because he was uh, really telling me things like this, and he is there in his 80s, in the, his laboratory, telling me that he has bought the same tennis racket that Roger Federer has because he wants to see if maybe he can get a match with him and just get one point on him. You know, he's finding ways to just kind of stay gritty no matter what it is, and and it's because of the joy of pursuit, right? So that that is a lot of the driving force of understanding these stories. But you know, as you read, you're also reminding me of why I. Chose to create an atlas of stories. For me, it's such a, a privilege to be able to inhabit a life and to try and
2: pull something out of it that maybe they don't even fully see. How many people did you talk to to write this book? Over 150. So, yeah. what kept you going? Yeah. What What was your sense of? What was your sense of? I'm not there yet. Why did you keep yeah. going? And no. all over the place. You were in England. You were here. Everywhere. You know. I felt that I was writing something that hadn't yet
1: been uh, addressed, about something that hadn't been addressed. And I thought that uh, you know, instinct is your highest form of intelligence, I believe. You know? And I would have an instinct about whether I was really at the heart or at the soul of someone's story or not. You know. So for example, with Ben Saunders, who you brought up earlier is another pa- character that I think is equally powerful to say is Samuel Morse. I spent two years talking to him, wanting to understand where his strength came from, to be able to go to the North Pole and back, solo and on foot, South Pole and back, solo and on foot in sub 50 degree temperatures, moving on ice sheets that are moving backwards as you're trying to move forwards in this area of the world that's says the size of the United States but completely depopulated. And I wasn't finding the answer because it's not simply strength. And instinct told me that I wasn't yet there. And uh, it was only when we talked about surrender, you know, this idea of not giving up but giving over to something much larger than yourself and to circumstance, and by releasing that resistance, finding the resources that you need to move forward, did I realize that I had gotten to the heart of it because of how it resonated in me. There's, I think, a sense that many writers feel, many people who create feel that if, it's, if you feel something deeply and intensely and don't
2: yet see it in the world, there might be a chance that others might want to hear it too. Well, you know, you have this wonderful... Tell us that great quote of Toni Morrison about surrender.
1: Oh, yeah. What is that? So she says, if you surrender to the air, you the can wind. ride it.
2: Now, I
1: put it as the wind. But it's air. It's air. So say fact. it again. What did she say? Sur- if you surrender
2: to the air, you can ride it. Yeah. You know. Well, there's a quote that I like of hers uh, that I, I'm going to push you. We, he, what did he say? We should go to each other. So, yes, um, <laughs> would <Where'd he> go? <laughs> thank you for that permission, Paul. Otherwise, it would have been much more polite. So, um, <laughs> years ago, I interviewed Tony Morrison at the 92nd Street Y. Um, uh, when Paradise came out mm-hmm. and she said that she starts writing a novel when she mm-hmm. which is this is great for the conversation too yeah. when she starts writing a novel when she has something to fret about. Oh. She knows mm-hmm. she's ready to write when she has yeah. something to fret about. Yeah. So now in your notes at the end of the book when you're thanking all of the wonderful people who've encouraged you and helped you, yeah. you allude to a grieving, a two mm-hmm. year grieving yeah. that you went through yeah. um, that, that in some way was the impetus for this book. Would you, would you say something about that grief and sure. how the rise helped, helped you get through that? Sure,
1: no, and here's such a good interviewer because you're pulling out of me the very thing I didn't fully say about Ben. When I, um, I went through a period of compound grief really uh, over the course of a year and a half, I, I lost friends in quick succession, Uh, This was when I was in my young 20s, after college and due to 9-11, but others were accidents, and I hadn't fully let myself process it. I didn't realize that until I started to talk with Ben about surrender, actually. And I wrote about surrender in this chapter as it relates to, to grief and this need to finally let go. Uh, of what's sort of holding you and in that moment for me at least the release that came when I saw that I was still here, you know, and that I wanted to live my life in a way that really showed that consciousness and appreciation that I was still here and I in that moment felt that I would need to be free enough to do things and possibly fail in order to become my fullest self, you know. So writing about surrender, as, as Ben described, it helped me understand that uh, and helped me understand other stories I, I write about where people overcame some kind of impediment by surrendering to a kind of a grief or... or um, loss, maybe? Loss or even just anticipating their own passing, Uh, Martin Luther King here comes to mind, you know. I write about him in the sense of, I I first saw, knew he was going to be part of the book because I saw that he received two C's in public speaking class, right, (laughs) in seminary. Yeah, what was that tick exactly? But I would like,
2: what did you know? Did Harry Belafonte mimic it? Because I'm I'm not aware of this. What is is the tick? Right, so at the end of his life. So Martin Luther King had
1: a tick. Yeah, he, at the end of his life he developed this tick and only a few friends would hear it and it was this like, like that when he would speak off, off stage oftentimes. And they didn't know why, but eventually it went away. So he, Harry Belfonte asked him in this televised interview what happened, how did it go away? And I'm not going to imitate um, King, but he essentially said, well, Harry, I, I made my peace with death, you know. And when I made my peace with that, I realized there was nothing left to fear. And the tick just went away. So the tick was some sort of a. Yeah, you know, a nervousness about what was going to come. But that really is the ultimate, right? When you can make your peace, and that's what I felt that I did when I made my peace in a way that's not cliched. Mm-hmm. It's really a f- understanding the fact of it. Mm-hmm. And I really became much more fearless, you know, and mm-hmm. how I go through my life, whether mm-hmm. or not it's. Apparent because everything is relative to where you were, mm-hmm. but that's how grief helped me with this book. Why'd um, you name it The Rise? Yeah. So the for a couple reasons. I the book is about really the capacity of the human spirit, you know, and the direction I think we're always trying to move. Uh, One reason. When I was thinking about a title, I was also watching football, and there was a quarterback who was being asked a question about what this team was going to do next. They had typically undefeated team, and they had lost. And he said, well, we just have to rise up. We just have to rise up. And I thought, everyone knows what that means. This is... And then the final reason had to do with watching these archers that I opened the book yeah. with. Yeah. These women who I went to go see one cold May Day up on a baker's field at the northern tip of Manhattan. And I was watching them for the three-hour practice that they go through to master this this arch really. And I was watching, I would kind of stand behind one of those archers and I would try to figure out how any one of their ar- arrows was going to hit that target 75 yards away and the bullseye from that distance looks like the tip of a matchstick held out at arm's length. Mm. Mm. So it seems impossible to do and I, and I would watch as those arrows would take this curved line path and would rise and then descend. And what it meant was that in order to actually hit your target, you have to aim at something slightly askew from it. Mm. So you've got to take into account that that rise, ultimately. So it, that curve line pursuit became a metaphor for me in thinking about mastery and thinking about the need to take into account the difficult circumstance that, if you do, can help you actually achieve
2: your goal. Mm-hmm. You, know? Yeah. you know what? Um, I was asking you backstage if you would... Because this, this is, I'm going to goad you a little bit more. So, okay, good. Uh, I, I was asking you if you'd read about Will Smith.
1: Right, right. You know, so
2: yeah. Angela Duckworth, who was going to be with us today, and mm-hmm. as Paul told you, unfortunately, had a family emergency, mm-hmm. is, you probably know that she's quite famous for these ideas about grit yes. and about um, self control. Um, for example, uh, she's proving through her research that. Uh, Grit will get you further mm-hmm. with uh, your report card mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. IQ will. Right. However, IQ will get you further on the, AC, on the, C, uh, the SAT. Right. Yep. <laughs> and then this idea of self-control being really not something that doing what people want you to do, right. but knowing what you want to do mm-hmm. and therefore doing what you have to do. And mm-hmm. her favorite person or yeah. hero is yeah. Will Smith, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Could you just read that little bit about Will Smith?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, So in honor of Angela in particular. So this is a passage where I've discussed grit and I'm describing it. Gritty people often sound, says Duckworth, like one of her favorite actors, Will Smith. He once said, the only thing that I see that is distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. I will not be outworked, period. You might have more talent than me, you might be smarter than me, you might be sexier than me, You might be all these things, you've got it on me in nine categories. But if we get on the treadmill together, there are two things. You're getting off first, or I'm gonna die. (laughs) It's really that simple, right? You're not going to outwork
2: me. Now, I thought that this was a very interesting thing in your book in tone and everything else, because so much of the book was about true exploration. Mm -hmm. For example, I don't know who said it, but it's a little bit sad when you think about it. The children are basically very exploratory. Yes. They want yes. to explore. Yes. They, uh, you know, they, they want to take things apart as oh, whoever yeah. this was said and they yeah. might, you know, want to explore throwing dishes down yes. your hallway. And that sense of exploration <laughs> is exactly what you need for yes. science, for exactly. example. So what is it? And we, and we want everybody to be good in science and they're not. So somehow we're cutting that exploration <laughs> off. This little anecdote about Will Smith yeah. seems to stand out as being more about sheer competition mm. than mm. the type of exploration that I see you mm-hmm. presenting mm-hmm. as you try to describe for us what the near win is mm-hmm. and what the gift of failure is. Well, that's an interesting point. I think the reason why I
1: chose it is because I was fascinated by how he was seemingly also Competing with himself, even though he was using the foil of another person I get it you know that 's really for me the question. The quest is about that internal landscape you know that gap what 's making um, someone like a William Faulkner publish The Sound and the Fury, and still not be happy with it. So he rewrites it five times and then republishes an appendix, even though it's acclaimed and it's a success. I think I see Will Smith in that vein, Mm -hmm. because I think his pursuit is about a kind of a mastery, Mm -hmm. not a kind of success, not being happy just with box office acclaim, but by trying to actually push himself to be another kind of a character again and again. Oh,
2: well, speaking of Will Smith, let's talk about The Blacklist.
1: Yes. So this was fascinating, writing about the blacklist. because uh, So Will Smith is right now the only golden ticket in Hollywood, right? The only actor who can pretty much guarantee that a film will make $150 million at the box office because of a certain formula that he's been able to kind of de- decode in Hollywood. But one of the people working for him, Franklin Leonard, when he was working actually at another company, was curious about how to really honor excellence in screenwriting but not um, go by a certain kind of formula. So he had a sense that people, that there were scripts out there that weren't being greenlit because they didn't have a, a model that they were conforming to, so people were afraid. So the blacklist came about when he asked his colleagues to submit to him the list of their top ten uh, screenplays that they had heard about that year that weren't being produced and that hadn't been financed yet. So he then did some fancy moves on Excel, tabulated it as a list in 2005, and then sent it out anonymously and called it The Blacklist. And on that list were films that we now herald as successful then were seen as duds and being passed around Hollywood desks. Slumdog Millionaire, Juno, Lars and the Real Girl, all these films that, when you think about it, it would be hard to advocate for, uh, as as someone says uh, in the chapter, I won't... You have, to, you have to read it to find out. He says, you know, imagine going to your boss and saying about Lars and the real girl, I have a script for you and it's about a man who falls in love with a sex doll. You know, and, and you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't find the courage and the conviction to do that. And you might not even do it about Slumdog Millionaire, really, right? So what this, the Blacklist was able to do was because of the amount of votes that each script received, 25, 20, 15, and the people who Franklin knew were going to vote on it, gave Hollywood studios a way and a kind of comfort to greenlight quirky, unusual scripts, right? So when Meryl Streep was on Charlie Rose, uh, she was talking about Hope Springs, and that's a script that came to her that way. And I remember in the interview, she was asked about why it was called The Blacklist. And he he gave it a tongue-in-cheek name, this idea of what's really on the margins one day can be mainstream the next. So I love this, but it's the one chapter that really starts to deal with how a crowd can make you think that something's a failure when, in fact, you know there's excellence in it. There's a, there's something original in it, and it might just be the next best thing you've
2: ever well, seen. Well, also speaking of the crowd, I mean, we, I feel like this blacklist comes together at a time when um, you know even the Four Seasons is nervous that uh, TripAdvisor uh, has more oh. power to tell the public what the Four Seasons can do or not, yeah, I or, I mean, we're sort uh-huh. of like in this time that the crowd is, as I mentioned on the phone to yeah. you, kind of like Shakespeare's groundlings that we can yeah. all chime in. Yep. And yep. that's partially because of technology. Yep. But we've also had you know, about 30 years of trying to bring down the white male hegemonic discourse. Yeah. So that yeah. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> I see Franklin is bringing down, <laughs> yeah. you know, the uh, largely white discourse yeah. of studio executives yep. and, yeah. uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know people who basically, as you say, better than I just have right now, you know they, they have a frame in yeah. which they 're working yeah. and they 're kind of nervous about going outside of that. Right. But I think the good right. news is that we 're living in a time absolutely. when the even probably the idea of what 's successful and what 's failed, even mm-hmm. with all of the type A people we know, yeah. that probably there 's more options absolutely you know I did though write this book in part because
1: of uh, this dynamic I think having a sense of being underestimated, you know, by not fitting into a form that people expect success to come in uh, was part of You think you don't fit a form? Well, I think growing up certainly, I mean, so much has changed actually in my own lifetime, really, as it relates to models that I had for myself uh, going forward. But I think there, there are ways, there are moments when I was very young where I started to gravitate towards life stories of people who had built their lives on uncommon foundations as a result of this. Um, so, so Franklin is in there, uh, kind of for that reason as well. Yeah. 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 Well, he's
2: a good-looking guy too. I, uh, <laughs> I Googled sick. him. I um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit because I'm mindful of the time, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. want tonight to go by without us having a chance to talk a little bit about about Frederick Douglass. Um, and this idea of 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 the of, of a picture and progress yeah. mm-hmm. and the power of a picture, the power of a picture, real a real picture, um, to bring mm-hmm. about you know social progress, especially yeah. Yeah. then. And I love that chapter on beauty um, and uh, justice, really, because mm-hmm. it talks to us about. Art and the power of mm-hmm. art to make a difference uh, where the law cannot. I once interviewed Albie Sachs, a former justice of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. in South Africa, and after apartheid fell, and he told me that, that, that jazz musicians, because mm-hmm. I was marveling at the mm-hmm. new Bill of Rights, he said, well, actually the jazz musicians wrote the Bill of Rights before the lawyers did. Oh, wow. And when you think about the civil rights movement in yeah. this country, yeah. The amount of art uh, that was... It was Mahalia Jackson uh, sitting next to um, uh, Martin Luther King at the big march who, when he was losing his way, talking, she said, Tell him about the dream, Martin. So you know that comes from this yeah. August yeah. singer. Yeah. So so that to me, yeah. you know, so much of what I think about all the time is the power of art to make a difference, and it's no small thing, especially the way you've described what Frederick Douglass was talking about mm-hmm. with those with mm-hmm. those pictures. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we we can't close the night without speaking about him, and you know, I just came from Atlanta, uh, where I was speaking with Kevin Young and. He has a line in the Grey Album on the blackness of blackness. I love that subtitle, uh, where he thinks of jazz as both a noun and a verb, you know, a way that it can call us to action. Right. So maybe I'll speak about Douglas, but maybe read about the way that jazz has impacted our lives through the power of what Douglas called aesthetic force. Really. Yes. Yes. So I'll read a few, just two paragraphs here. And it's about a moment when we permit a new future to enter the room with these startling encounters of aesthetic force. A young boy from Austin, Texas, Charles Black, stood and knew it when he was just 16 years old, thinking he was going to a co-ed social at the Driscoll Hotel in his hometown in 1931. It was a dance, the first in a session of four, yet he remained transfixed by an image he had never seen before. The trumpet player, a jazz musician, performed largely with his eyes closed, sounding out notes, ideas, laments, sonnets that had never before existed, he said. His music sounded like an utter transcendence of all else created. He was with a friend, a good old boy from Austin High, who sensed it too and was troubled. It rumbled the ground underneath them. His friend stood a while longer, shook his head as if clearing it, and as if prying himself out of a trance. But Charles Black Jr. was sure, even then. The trumpeter, Louis Armstrong, king of the trumpet as it turned out, was the first genius I had ever seen, Black said. And that genius was housed in the body of a man whom Black's childhood worlds had denigrated. The moment was solemn. Black had been staring at genius, yes, fine control over total power, all height and depth, forever and ever, and also staring at the gulf created by the failure to recognize kinship. He felt that Armstrong, who played as if guide by a daemon, all power and lyricism, quote, opened my eyes wide and put to me a choice to keep to a small view of humanity or to embrace a more expanded vision. And once Black made that choice, he never turned back. This is what aesthetic force can do, create a clear line forward and an alternate choice route to choose. Later, Black would say that, in many ways, this was the day that he began working, walking towards the Brown case, where I belonged, he mm-hmm. said. Black would go on to join the legal team for the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case that persuaded the Supreme Court to unanimously disallow segregation, and he became one of the most preeminent constitutional lawyers in the country. What I, what I don't quite go into as much depth with as I wish I had is that he held this annual Armstrong listening concert in Columbia and Yale where he went on to be a professor uh, to remind people of the power of the arts in the, in the field of justice and, of, of course, the one man who caused him to have this inner life-changing shift. So... I guess I'd, I'd end by, by saying that, you know, Douglas knew this in 1861 and 1865 during the Civil War. He surprised his audiences, which you know, we forget were 12, 13,000 size audiences, right? Well, you
2: said they were like rock stars he, orators exactly. then. Exactly. Sojourner Truth, That's Elizabeth Cady right. Stanton.
1: Yep. He had few equals as people knew it uh, of him. And so he surprised people when during the Civil War, he spoke about what some might consider, as he said, mere trifles, you know, during this time where one out of every four men were dying. right, And those trifles, as he saw it, were actually not that at all. They were pictures, but not just that, pictures that had the power to arrest you and in that moment make you envision everything in front of you differently because of what you had just seen. Right. So he likens that to song. He anticipated that a song could have that power. He said, give me the making of a nation's
2: ballads and I care not who has the making of its laws. You know, right. So that's this. sort of like the Albie Sachs thing, you know, yes, yes. ballots versus laws. And yeah. we also know, I mean, we have, we have more time. I just wanted to make sure course, we would get we got, to yeah, this. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we also know the limits of the law. Exactly. exactly. That, um, that in in the end, it, the law represents a part of the people's will, yep. but that the people's will is moved by beauty. Yes. Now, another person, I told you I brought one more thing. So another person... You talk about Elaine Scarry. Serendipitously, um, in January, I went back and looked at an interview that I did of Elaine Scarry in 2009 mm. while I was trying to make Let Me Down Easy better going into, I think it's uh, next after what you saw. I didn't yeah. make it into the final play, but it, it made it at least to Harvard where she was. Mm-hmm. And here, as you allude, she's going to t- talk at, at a little bit a greater length than you did, uh, in, in the book at least, but I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with these ideas, oh, and yeah. I would like yeah. you to respond, um, about beauty and mm-hmm. justice. Mm-hmm. One thing is, just the way in which beauty does... Oh, here's my favorite part right here. Oh, my goodness. Oh, she's talking about beauty... And she says, beauty was for a long time, beauty was just not only eliminated from universities, Hmm. but even from museums. I don't know if you know about this Aggie. Lots of different museum (laughs) directors have told me that for a while it was as though you weren't supposed to be talking about beauty, which is hard to imagine if you're teaching literature or if you're a museum curator. But I mean, one thing is just the way in which beauty, and I'm not mimicking Elaine Scarry, believe me, um, in which beauty does lead people, I think, to be concerned with justice. Yeah. Beauty brings about what Iris Murdoch called a non selfing thing. Mm-hmm. She said that when you suddenly see something beautiful, her example was suddenly seeing a bird lift off. It brings about a non-selfing. You can see beauty pressing us towards justice. There are certain attributes that beautiful things have. Some people would say symmetry. Mm-hmm. Any definition of justice always involves, at its heart, some idea of balance or symmetry. Even if you look back over lots of philosophers who are talking about forms of justice, they always have this idea of, say, equal pay for equal work. Mm-hmm. That's a symmetry. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, now this is my favorite part. Okay, this is the important part. But sometimes people will say to me, well, first of all, that that they believe that it's right, that the whole unselfing part is right, but they don't believe in symmetry. And I really do believe in it because, and I think part of the reason why in this country we don't like to talk anymore about symmetry in art or in justice is because we're so asymmetrical with so much money. (laughs) And so many weapons. And, you know, you can imagine, you studied with Scary, what she would sound like. You know, if we had to start saying, the heart of beauty is symmetry, everybody would have to say, gee, you know, we've got a big problem. (laughs) And she she calls beauty a life pact. Life but, packed, that life that. but that life pack. But that whole idea of the non-selfing. You see, when you talk that's about a, mm-hmm. that, you're you're there, but you're not quite there. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a really creative moment because it is that moment when you, yeah. like a bird, take that lift off. Mm-hmm. You're not here and you're not there. Yeah. You're yeah. in the rise. You didn't say this, but yeah. it seems to me a kind of a lift. Exactly,
1: exactly, and I, you know I start that chapter about Douglas with this Elaine scary epigraph because her ideas of, about how vivid that description is about the asymmetrical quality to the dynamic when you realize that you you're in fact have failed to see something uh, that you now do because of the beauty of what 's in front of you you know i mean it 's why this is a timeless uh, interest of philosophers in particular I think it 's why. The importance of aesthetics is why Aristotle said, You know, reason alone is not enough to make men good. You know, he understood that there's a force, there's a way that beauty kind of slips in the back door of our rational thought and gets us to see the world differently. But it does often, it's often accompanied by being off kilter in a moment. And I'm thinking now of Thomas Jefferson, whose quote is right underneath Elaine Scaries, where he said, in response to looking at a painting, he said, it fixed me like a statue a quarter of an hour or a half an hour, I do not know which, for I lost all ideas of time, even the consciousness of my own existence.
2: You know? Wow. Right? Wow, Thomas Jefferson said right. that. Yeah,
1: Thomas Jefferson said this. So, <laughs> You know, he was about to have his rise, but he was about to be fixed. But we do need to talk about this more. Aggie's here, so we'll, we'll have a way to maybe, <laughs> maybe work on this. But this is central for me, understanding the way that Aesthetic force can impact us
2: is also say why I wrote a lot this more form. about aesthetic force because sure. that, that's among, you have mm. many beautiful words in your book, but you come back to those two a lot. What does that mean to you as a, uh, a curator, as a professor? Yeah. What does aesthetic force
1: Well, I really to, mean? You know, I'll, this is the way I write about it. Okay. The words to describe aesthetic force suggest that it leaves us changed, stunned, dazzled, knocked out. It can quicken the pulse, make us gape, even gasp with astonishment. Its importance is its animating trait, not what it is, but what it does to those who behold it in all its forms. Its seeming lightness can make us forget that it has weight, force enough to bring about a self-correction, the acknowledgement of failure at the heart of justice, the moment when we reconcile our past with our intended future selves. Few experiences get us to this place more powerfully with a tender push past the Praetorian guarded doors of reason and logic than the emotive power of aesthetic force. So I go on to describe these moments where aesthetic force has gripped us so much that we have either inaugurated a movement, whether it's the environmental movement and that occurred when people saw the image of the planet. Suspended in the environment that we know it inhabits but don't quite see as an environment. And in 1968 realized that we needed to do something uh, to honor the way that we care for ourselves collectively, differently. Many other graphic,
2: visual well, moments Well, Where would the when, Civil Rights Movement have been without yeah. the photograph? Without the exactly. photographs of dogs? Exactly. And uh, in fact, I wonder yep. now with some of the more, the kinds of problems that we have, uh, let's say with the great inequities in education right now, mm-hmm. I wonder if part of the problem is, of why we sort of can't get people to that point where they're willing, uh, well, actually the mayor at the Riverside Church on Sunday was talking about yeah. the yeah. idea of all, all, all children are our children, right? So what's keeping us from being able to get to that? Is it because there is no one photograph? That there you is know? no one song? Because <laughs> yeah. where would we have been without yeah. those images. Where would right. we have been without the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, photographs mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the Vietnam War? Right. Um, so I wonder if there's a problem now, because mm-hmm. there is so much noise out there that we mm-hmm. can all chime in, that there are so many pictures, and right. you can all send a, everybody pictures, that yeah. there is no one picture to grab us, the way yeah. that, you know, yeah. uh, Frederick yeah. Douglass was talking about yeah. That, yeah. that picture.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're on to some, absolutely. It's, it's why this, for me, that chapter is the soul of the book. Although I mean as the audience might or might not know, it ranges, right? They're from so many different kinds of individuals. Talking about this moment, at this moment in time, the power of aesthetic force is critical. We have access to creating any image that we want. But there are very few forms in which we gather around an image, let alone
2: an image of how we want to see ourselves, really. Or how we don't want to see ourselves. Exactly. Because the examples I just gave would be Mm -hmm. things that we don't want to believe that's that's how we are. So mm -hmm. it's either what we want to be or what we'd like to think we're not. Exactly, exactly. And this is what
1: gets us to the importance of vision and the imagination when it comes to moving out of difficult circumstance. You know, how is it that we actually can create an image that we hold to. I mean, Douglas's idea, it's about, yes, pictures, and this is a time when the daguerreotype is being developed, so everyone is excited about this new medium, the same way we're excited about our iPhones, maybe, to a certain degree. But he's talking about these inner thought pictures, as he calls it, you know. And how we share those, I'm, I'm thinking also has to do with these moments where a powerful orator like a Martin Luther King can get us to all focus Right. On an image. On an image,
2: you know. Yeah. Well, of course, we don't live in a moment of oratory really exactly. anymore. Exactly. I mean, exactly. slam poets and well, yeah. some singers, yeah. Yeah. but not big long it's speeches. Right. I mean, when people right. do, when Obama did that, mm-hmm. that first time that we ever saw him, it, yeah. it just grabbed everybody.
1: Right. And then the *Shepherd* *Fairy* poster really right. helped grab people just because it reminded us of what hope could look like. But the power of the image, I don't think should be underestimated when it comes to this idea. But I. I mean, in the book, I think there, we talked about Ben Saunders and Samuel Morse, but they were all also holding to an image of themselves that the world didn't yet fully see, do you know?
2: And I- So you think they had a sort of inner sense of themselves?
1: I do. Wow. um, I do. You know, There was one story, I mean, I could have written volumes on this idea. One story that made me think of what conviction, uh, what the mechanism for conviction really is and if it requires vision or not. And that's the story of, well, Einstein, when he was, before he was Einstein, and wanted to, actually his wife wanted to divorce from him, I should say, his first wife. He had a vision of where he was going to be that was so strong that when he was not able to even get a job as a substitute teacher at the time, right, he was not even yet working in the patent office, he was sure he would win the Nobel Prize. And so was his wife, so that so much so that in their divorce agreement, he promised that he would give her the proceeds from the Nobel Prize. And she agreed.
2: So I thought,
1: what crazy vision is this? So that got me. So <laughs> <but> <laughs> Sarah,
2: then what would you say on a, sort of on a, a broader, more sociological yeah. level, I know the book is, is mostly about individuals. Mm-hmm. What, what, what would we, what would help when there are people who are living lives where whatever that vision they have of themselves yeah. soon becomes not a, uh, a productive, sort of uh, aesthetic force driving them forward, yeah. but they meet so many obstacles all around them mm-hmm. that if anything, it's a, fancy, it's a fantasy or a whimsy right, right. and it's not realizable. Right. What, what in this wonderful work that you have done could help us think about some of the things we could do yeah. to counteract that? The yeah. stuff that makes it, you know, if you don't even know enough to be competing with yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, the reason why I love the fact that his
2: Einstein's
1: wife was kind of complicit in this is because it often takes fellowship, right, and support. People who remind you of that vision, even when you can't see it. Wow! You know. That's why I made sure to also speak about not just Ben Saunders but his coach, you know, someone who reminds him when he knows that it's so difficult uh, that he might not be able to do it, uh, that he once had a vision of himself as being able to, to do this. And, who got Morse through? You know, he wrote to his brother oftentimes and his parents and the letters back often have these notes of encouragement when he would write and say to his mother and father, it is mortifying, I say, it is mortifying to hear Washington Alston say, that is not paint, sir, that is red dust and clay, you know. His, his parents would, would write back notes of encouragement in terms of reminding him why he was doing what he was doing and who he could become. And he, at the end of his life, you know, still wanted to be that, that painter, still had that vision in mind, but it was the network of support. It's why I might spend more time than, than most might have in acknowledging all the people who supported me during what felt well, like also, a risk. what about you know?
2: Shadrach, your grandfather?
1: Exactly. Shadrach Emanuel Lee, my grandfather whose initials I share, Shadrach Emmanuel Lee is a much cooler name than Sarah Elizabeth Lewis, I think, uh, really was foundation for me. He was a jazz musician, bass player, and a painter and spent his life in pursuit of what he didn't fully, I wouldn't say realize in terms of dreams, but because of that hardship and living as I remember him in this house in Virginia that kind of seemed like it was ready to sink back into the earth, you know. Uh, The dreams were, I thought, grander, or maybe that was just my imagination because I was very young when I spent time with him. But it always made me wonder about this paradox of life, right, that the very, opposite of what you think can lead to this beautiful rise, can in fact be what inspires it, you know. So I, I would think of him often as I would write the book, he certainly inspired me to be in the arts so that it's dedicated uh, to him. And there are many. I mean, we each have our, our Shadrachs, I think, that we just don't often speak about mm-hmm. them, you know. So it's important to do that.
2: Yeah. Well, it's that time. I am a very good timekeeper. Um <laughs> It's what Paul wants, that at 10 after eight, we shall have people coming up to the mic to announce themselves and ask questions. Good questions. A good question only lasts 15 seconds.
0: Hi, uh, Maria Popova. So in 1977, Decades before Facebook and Instagram, um, Susan Sontag wrote in On Photography that the need to have reality confirmed and our experience enhanced by photographs is becoming a kind of aesthetic consumerism to which we're all addicted. So I wonder how do we keep aesthetic force from becoming aesthetic consumerism, both as a culture and as individuals? Yeah,
1: yeah, it is a great question.
0: (laughs) You know? Good Leave
1: it to the brilliant Maria Popova to ask a question that can stump <laughs> 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 probably anyone. I I just I love the work that she does. Thank you. You know, I don't. I think that artists always have the power to outstrip our capacity to be astonished. You know, I think part of the reason that I do the work that I do is I believe uh, that. A student of mine, say, getting an MFA in in photography or painting uh, can have the capacity to make me see the world differently in an instant. So for that reason, I don't fear our need to constantly document what's going on in front of us because I think that it it can mean that we are actually capturing a moment that will astonish and create a kind of ground clearing uh, that will let us see things differently. I don't don't fear the ubiquity of the image as much as other people do. because, again, I think that there are always new frontiers to find. And I have a lot of trust in our, in our artists to lead us down those paths that we, do, might, that we might not know that we want to actually see. Is that at all
0: helpful? It's perfect. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Hello.
2: Hi. Jamie Floyd, good
0: to see you. How are you? Uh,
2: I have a very small and short question, but it may be a bigger answer. And it has to do with the fear of failure because uh-huh. you've talked a lot about failure leading to the rise right. but have you encountered stories of failure and the fear of it leading mm-hmm. to paralysis? And mm-hmm. I'm sure for even non-artists that can be the case and I wonder yeah. what you learned about that in your, in your work. Another and good and question. if you want to address that, Anna, I'd love to hear anything you might have to say as well.
1: Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. I, the fear of failure is a topic that is uh, kind of sub-rosa in the whole book because I do write about artists who might have a fear of failure but they found a mechanism to overcome it. Um, in Blankness, I write about you know, the, the, how crushing critique can be. Paul Taylor, renowned choreographer and dancer in 1957 when he laid out his dances that uh, had the, the germinating seed of what would become his iconic style. Audiences, as he described it, cantered out of the aisles. Imagine if all of you ran out on me. You know, it's, it's, it's crushing. And so the review he received was a blank review. It was just the name of his dance company and no comment about the dance and just the reviewer's initials. Damning, critique, how do you move forward from that? And I would imagine I would have developed a kind of fear of failure if I were him. But in that chapter, I write about all the ways that artists overcome it, or as i sense it, that they might have... August Wilson, for example, would start many of his plays by writing on napkins in restaurants, right? And the waitress came over and said, do you do that because it's, it's easier to kind of get going? And he said, you know, yeah, I didn't realize that's why I, that's why I do that. And then he'll go home to his typewriter and then begin the work. It's a way of kind of tricking yourself out of... Uh, out of, do, out of having a fear of failure, I write about how residencies help other artists do this. one of the wonderful
2: sure. things about the Paul Taylor yeah. story too is his relationship with Rauschenberg. Oh, I know. That's I mean, so oh, I think that artists <laughs> keeping the company of one another—that's an- right.
1: That's right. That's another way because they were collaborating at the time, and Rauschenberg had these, you know, included things like live animals in it. And but Rauschenberg also had a way of helping Paul Taylor release himself from the kind of fear of failure. They had this ritual where they released the set of balloons after the Jack and the Beanstalk performance as a way of kind of letting it go, you know, and moving on to the next thing. So artists often find fellowship in, in how they can speak to each other. I
2: think it's themselves. also, I actually taught Jamie, I can't believe she came and took a class of mine when I was at Stanford and she was a respectable law- lawyer, right? Or in the if law there school? there is such a thing, yes. <laughs> if, 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 there, if there is such a thing. But, you know, and I always think when people, very smart people like Jamie, show up in my classroom, it's because they actually think that the playfulness of an acting class is going to help them with a certain sort of way that they are nervous or scared. And we use the word, you know, you say also, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm picking up about the, uh, the, it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who talked about the kids um, uh, uh, being explorationists. And you're really talking about exploring Uh, at the same time talking about play. And you say playfulness lets us withstand enormous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The deliberate amateur knows no other way. Mm -hmm. So I begin every one of my acting classes or any class by saying to people, confidence is overrated, give doubt a try. You know, <laughs> with this, this hope That's that they great. won't feel that they need to be yeah. confident yeah. and that this mock confidence won't get in our way. So we're always talking about play in the arts or the beginning of a rehearsal process. We know it's going to be dead serious in about three days we'll all be terrified, but everybody says, well, let's just play today. I yeah. mean, they use this kind of language yeah. to help us not be so afraid.
1: That's right. And one thing we haven't talked about is I, I love this chapter on the deliberate amateur, these two Nobel Prize winners who developed the first, or found the first two-dimensional object on the earth, which is replacing silicone. But they are so playful in their laboratory, all of the, their groundbreaking inventions have come from this Friday night experiment time, times where they permit themselves to not have the, free, the fear of failure. You know, it's their techniques, their different ways, but play is key to it, I think it's really central. Good Sense advice for play. all professions.
2: Thank yes, you. Yes,
1: yes, thank you.
3: Hi, um, my question might be bad, so someone needs to pull me off. Um, I love the the blacklist and the idea that you said about dismantling the white hegemony. Mm. Um, And I think a lot about privilege and its impact on an artist's capacity to risk and to explore and to push against that fear of failure. So I'm wondering about your thoughts on privilege and how it impacts Mm. all of
1: this. That's an important point, you know. (laughs) So much of this book is about risk-taking, you know, what allows us to take a risk and what sometimes forces us to take a risk. So in Franklin's case, who's the founder of The Blacklist, uh, he he constantly moved around. He had a background of privilege, at least in terms of education. You know, we we went to Harvard together. Um, But I saw in him something that I see in myself, which is despite having worked hard enough to be privileged in the sense that you you have a good kind of educational background, um, not wanting to be too comfortable, you know? And I think that's very important for pushing yourself forward. I'm not sure if your question is about the way in which this operates in a collective sense in Hollywood, if it's more pointed than that, but as, an, as a creator, I think it's always important to, uh, you know, stay at your leading edge. And sometimes that means being willing to withstand a bit of, of discomfort in order to push yourself forward. I'm thinking about uh, this line uh, Duke Ellington said, you know, when he was asked about his favorite song in his repertoire, he said, it's always the next one, always the one you have yet to do. So what does it mean to constantly look forward to what's to come? I think it means not feeling so comfortable with whatever privilege that we might have that we are overly satisfied. Does that answer your question? Um, Not totally. Tell me more. Um, I'm thinking more about um,
3: if you're low income, if you don't have the privilege of academic networks that connect you to people who know people who know people, who can help you move up, Um, race, culture, attractiveness, Mm -hmm. um, gender, Mm -hmm. size, Mm -hmm. all the different things that can help someone lift up or not, and how that impacts your ability to... to push against the fear of failing. And if yes. you don't have a support network underneath you, can you try, can you risk and explore right. um, to make something that might be crazy and visionary? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess more mm-hmm. on that front.
1: Yeah, no, on that front, it's actually, I think the same example of the Nobel Prize winners, Andre Geim and Konstantin Novoslav is instructive. They, Andre when he gave his Nobel Prize speech prided himself on doing work very far outside of laboratories that were seen as the most likely uh, to have innovated in this way and he, he's very you know defiant and succinct and he said you know you don't need to be at a Harvard or a Cambridge to do this work you really have to be willing to graze to play to not be afraid of taking a risk and oftentimes i think the complacency or the uh, desire to stay in a position of privilege can make us not take a risk. I actually see sometimes more of a handicap in, in courting these positions mm-hmm. of, of a claim. Uh, so that chapter might be of interest if you haven't, haven't read it. It doesn't relate as much to the blacklist.
2: Uh, Although I will say there's something curious that mm-hmm. I came upon with Angela Duckworth, who yeah. again, unfortunately we don't have with us, that mm-hmm. um, it takes as much grit to get an AA degree as it takes to get a PhD. Uh-huh. So that these things yeah. are relevant, you know, they're relative exactly. to what your surrounding is. So to think yeah. that it takes somebody as much grit to get through
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, junior college in some circumstances mm-hmm. as it takes others to get a PhD.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an important point. I just want to underscore it. Because I, I think as I was writing this book, I got the sense that some might see the pursuits of others uh, uh, as kind of lesser than, some of their obstacles might be less than others. And I think it's so important to remember that we're always dealing with what's this great quote, a sort of internal battle that you know nothing about. Everyone's got this inner gap that they're dealing with that might seem like it's a war going on within them, regardless of how it looks from the outside, you know? So for me, having that kind of non-judgment was helpful and helped me to really understand uh, an internal landscape that was far more, at times, gruesome, terrifying than I could even have imagined despite seeming privileged on the
2: outside, if that that helps. Yeah, it does, thank you. I think we probably have
4: time for like one more, two, two more? more, two more oh, questions.
1: Great. Perfect.
4: Okay. Hi. Aww. First of all, congratulations on the book. Oh, A quick question. So I, I read something recently that. Um, Thank you. They were saying that in Silicon Valley, it's now become sort of a badge of honor, the whole idea of failure.
2: Hold the mic closer to your mouth.
4: Does that work? Yeah. There we go. (laughs) That's (laughs) it. That in Silicon Valley, it's now become a badge of honor, something you display publicly that you've got Mm -hmm. failures. And in fact, if you don't, it sort of devalues you. And I wonder if in your work, you found some universal environmental factors that impacted people's ability to experience or leverage failure, or did you find that it was all really personally defined rather than impacted Mm -hmm. by the things around you?
1: Mm. Well, it's a great question. Uh, you're making me flash back to being at FailCon in Silicon Valley, which is this conference where entrepreneurs, wildly successful ones, are only allowed to speak about their failures. And I was so struck by being there. <laughs> you're trying to envision it. <laughs> it's just. Uh, mind-blowing, you have to really be there to believe it. But what struck me as similar in all of their cases was that they were all willing to look at their life the way an athlete might and rewind the tape a bit, you know, to find that distance required, whether it's through months or just a uh, different mechanism to kind of look at it differently and to have a way to extract the kind of poison out of the experience and take it, the experience as information used in order to improve or pivot, as they say in Silicon Valley, or any other jargon term that they have to describe how to move out of a, a kind of failed pursuit. That was one trade. There are many. There, are, I don't go into kind of personality traits in the book, and I don't really speak about the differences in gender, which might actually have something to do with what we're seeing in terms of high levels of risk taking in, in entrepreneurship. Um, but. You know, we spoke about vision, and that's the other main trait I saw on that that stage. They were always holding to a kind of vision for what they knew that they could achieve. And it's a a kind of a confidence that came not from being successful when they were young, but maybe wanting to have something to prove, maybe wanting to strive and see themselves uh, as a different person than they were a few years back, that kind of inner competitiveness we were talking about with Will Smith. That's another trait I saw, Very, really gritty, you know. But um, after writing about failure for a year and a half, going to fail con still shocked me, you know. The, the stories I heard on those stages left me with my mouth on the floor so much that a woman to my right kind of put her hand on my knee and she said, well, what's Falcon if we can't talk about these things? I thought, oh my God, it's, it's so extreme. So uh, I, uh, I kind of salute everyone who goes through what they do to, to find their rise. Okay. Yeah.
4: But did you find that those traits, mm-hmm. or did you find any evidence that those traits were more or less prevalent in particular cultures or particular geographies, or was it all really just sort of personal and you could find those things occur no matter where you went?
1: Well, uh, I didn't write this book with an eye to looking at how studies can kind of explain the world. I really wanted to foreground the power of story. It's really why talking with Anna is such a delight because that's, that's how you approach the world, the world too. And I think for me, as I scratch the surface on many stories, I find that we all have these capacities, these traits. You know, I am still curious about whether or not different cultures have more risk tolerance or more capacity or more interest in the topic of failure. That's, it's intriguing to me, you know. I think in America we are honor ambition, not just achievement, and with that comes interest in how someone might have failed so that we kind of honor that, that risk a bit more. So that remains to be seen. I haven't quite explored it to the degree that I'd like to. More to come. But in terms of individual traits, I believe that we all have the capacity to
2: overcome what we're going through. Sarah, who did you write this book for? Mm. Who's, your, who's, your, who's your audience?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Before I... the
2: marketing people decide.
1: <laughs> they probably would be happy to hear me say what is the truth, which is I, I wrote it really for everyone. Do you know, it's, I wrote it first um, as I was thinking about what I wanted to have in the world for the next generation as I was thinking about children and wanting to have children, do you know. Uh, so I hope it's for young people, I hope it's for those who are trying to not just create a work of art, but to create their lives differently. You know? I think of it not just in terms of the disciplines I write about, you know, athletes and entrepreneurs and artists, but really for anyone of any age. And as I look at the different audiences I've been speaking with from... Philadelphia's, you know, Constitution Center, to different museums, to colleges, to, you name it, uh, I think it's kind of borne out. Uh, and that's sort of my evidence that it is true. So it means I'll be a little tired talking <laughs> talking to a ton of folks, but really just joyful. because. I...
0: Well, thank you so much for the mm. book. And thank
2: you for being with us. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.